Well, welcome. What are you doing up here? <laughs> I just wandered in. You know me, <laughs> yeah, Kevin. I follow the leader of the spirit, and this is where he led me today. Do you want to do a message so, with me? Or sure, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Just, Before yeah. we do, I just want to say a couple <laughs> things. One is uh, we just done a podcast, uh, dropped a couple new uh, podcasts out there. I'd love for you to look at it. If you kind of like our time of worship, when it talks about surrender, we're talking a lot about um, vulnerability in worship. What does it mean to come in and to give yourself? Because um, this is not just an hour to say, hey, I went to church. It's an hour to really come in the presence of God. And so we have those. So listen to the podcast. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Cy, mm-hmm. for leading us. Um, how incredibly cool that she came to faith uh, through this ministry and now is leading that ministry. God does some remarkably wonderful things. And then the other thing I wanted to just mention for those of you as we are kind of moving towards the last two months of our fiscal year, we have that, that $20,000 uh, matching gift that is um, running through May. Anything over and above that you give will be to- put towards that. And just coming in, Peter told me that if we get that 20, he's given 20. So, you know, we got it. Is that right? I had said 30, but you said no, oh, 25. Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah. Anyway. No, I, I'm so glad to have you, Peter, here. I, you know, I was kind of thinking about, we, you know, we love to banter around. We don't really have a lot of time because we have so much yeah. to cover here. Yeah. Um, but I just, uh, I was thinking about what to say coming in, in this morning, um, as I was praying. I just want to let you know what a great friend you are mm. and how much I appreciate what you have done for our church over these last 10 or more years that we've kind of been, you know, doing stuff here. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Kevin. I, <laughs> I, uh, so anything mean you were going to say, how do you do it now? Huh? I know, I, mean, I wasn't planning <laughs> on that at all. But, you know, and I have said it up front, even when you're not here, the, the trusted friendship is not a thing to be taken lightly. And yeah. I'm so grateful for you, for Taylor, the team. I love being with all of you. I truly do. And uh, I guess, I mean, it was 26 years ago I stood up here, and, and Hallie and I got married. So this has been my church forever and ever. Yes. And I even see people I know that unfortunately knew me when I was like <laughs> 10. So that's a, that's a big problem, Tom and Beth McCon. Okay. Why don't you Why don't you lead us in worship? I mean, in prayer. Oh, that'd be great. Not okay. worship. Yeah. Sure no, no, that. nobody wants Please, that. Nobody wants you. that. Anyway. Yes. All right. I'll pray. Uh, God, thank you for the just your kingdom and the eternality of it. That has been something we've been able to be a part of here at Ways Out of Free uh, for our years here on this earth. And so, by your Spirit, continue to lead and guide and direct and shepherd our paths. In your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been in the uh, book of Acts since actually last September, and I've been kind of breaking them up into one-word titles, which is this word uncomfortable, which I believe is the last one that we'll be doing in this series, because there are so many uncomfortable things that happened in this section of Scripture. But um, before we actually read Acts 12 here and, and, and look at this passage of Scripture with this interaction now it kind of moves to Herod um, and kind of closes off a section before it begins 13. Tell us a little bit, if you would, just about um, what you perceive to be the main issue in these verses of Scripture. Yeah, I think if we might put a map up there, I'm not sure, but we can see in these verses of Scripture that there are a couple of cities that are outside of the nation of Israel. They are Gentile cities and Tyre and Sidon, and they are dependent, however, upon this King Herod that we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, for food and sustenance and other sort of resources and goods. And there's going to be issues of justice and power that come in here because Herod is their pipeline right. for these things. They can't just go to Costco or Cub or anything. Right. They really have to be dependent upon Herod. So these kind of embargoes, things like we think might be true today, happened in the past. He yeah. was doing this because he felt slighted by sure. someone in a political maneuver. so Yeah, we've never seen that, have we, where people get slighted and they decide to take it out on, on their political opponent? No, never no. seen that kind of thing. So, so. yeah. 
Okay, let, let's, let's, um, let, before we actually, again, read, let's pause a second. There's two really important elements I think that would be helpful as we read even the story. Um, one of them has to do with where this takes place in Caesarea. And if you remember in one of our past messages, we talked about Cornelius, who is a Roman, um, Roman officer of the, their military. He, of the Italian legion. And, and that city, was a city that the Jews had difficulty with because it had such incredible Roman influence. Um, Herod, the Herod lines, were building all the time to impress Rome, and this was one city they did so. So Caesarea is kind of like the Washington, D.C. of the Middle East. It's it's the uh, kind of the political military headquarters. It's a port city. Um, it's the seat of Rome's power. Uh, there was such investment in this city that when you came in this horseshoe-shaped um, bay, you would have all around it statues of the Caesars, and one of the reasons it's named Caesarea, to impress people. In fact, from the moment you would come in by sea, you would know this was Rome city. And they had all kinds of incredible architecture from hippodromes, amphitheaters, a temple to Caesar, and then aqueducts as well. And this aqueduct looks a little bit more like the Stone Arch Bridge. It, these were all throughout the Roman Empire. They, they had tremendous engineering skills where they would bring water to places where there wasn't much water. And, and that's what that did. That just carries water. So that's a little bit about Caesarea. Why don't you give us a little background on Herod as well? Yeah, and that picture in Caesarea, by the way, I've had a chance to stand there, and I think, I don't know if the picture does it justice in terms of the magnificence of the structure. Like, there was such wealth and such power concentrated in the Roman Empire at that time, and the Herodian dynasty wanted to participate in the power and the wealth of Rome. And so this Herod was not the Herod that would have been at the time of Jesus when he was a child. This was uh, part of the Herodian dynasty, though. This Herod is Herod Agrippa, and he would have grown up actually intentionally in Rome so that he could learn the ways of the Romans, therefore sort of wield the power of Rome. And his interest was not necessarily in shepherding the people. He was supposed to be a shepherd of God's people, but he was far more interested in the political intrigue and the power that he could wield on behalf of the Roman Empire. And so his decision-making and how he thought about his life was simply, what can I do to both win more of the favor of the people and have more power that therefore I can wield? And it really just centered around himself. So he was in political leadership for his own purposes. It was all about Herod at the end of the day. Again, probably relatively relevant to uh, where we are today. Right. So the last thing I'll say to set the the context for this text as we move into reading it is we've been looking at the fact that in the beginning of this chapter, um, James has been executed by Herod. So it's Herod's action. It's James, the brother of John. and, And then the next thing you see is Peter's in jail. And then there's a story about Peter's escape, and now we move to Herod once again. And, and you have this kind of sense of, okay, what is God going to do? Remember in Acts, you see a lot of what is a challenge to the work of God, to the, the movement of God. And then there is a triumph by God, and then there's expansion. So that's what happens here. Let me go ahead and read these, uh, these words from this passage of Scripture. Do you have those up there, by chance? Yeah, okay. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent on Herod's country for food. And the delegates won support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistants. 
and an appointment with Herod was granted. And when the day arrived, Herod put his royal robes on, sat on a stone, and made a speech to them. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, It's the voice of a God, not a man. Instantly, the angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted people's worship instead of giving glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. That's my favorite part, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Be careful what you say today. Yeah, yeah, you no. get a bellyache, well, no. Anyway, <laughs> meanwhile, the, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. And, and, and re, 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 recall this here. Um, Saul, you're going to see him at some point, he's going to be changed to his name, Paul, as Luke would see it. So anyway, so that that's all kind of building into the context of what's going on. Um, if you would go ahead, Peter, and kind of give us an idea, what's the significance of of this whole passage of scripture, verse 23, this, this smoting of Herod? Yeah, well, I mean, we've already talked about it, right? Like, why Herod wanted to be in the position of, of authority that is in. It was about him. And, and we see this play out in the passage, right? It, for what drove Herod, the words of the people could not have been sort of more of a balm to his soul, right? They say it's the voice of a god, not a man. I mean, this is what he would have been trained up for, is to have the people sort of semi-worship him in this way. And right when he says this, I mean, we, we see this pattern of scripture so often where the question really is, whose kingdom are you building? Are you building your kingdom or are you building the kingdom of God? And this is one of the many instances where it's very clear somebody that is supposed to be leading God's people is actually building their own kingdom. And God executes judgment in a wide variety of ways. And it's probably too much for this sermon to get into um, the fullness of that. But I think what we can safely say is that one example of God's justice is, is that he doesn't really suffer very long those people who are supposed to be shepherding his beautiful children and instead are leveraging God's beautiful children on behalf of their own kingdom, building their own kingdom instead of uh, using their power for the shepherding and coming underneath that. So as soon as these words are spoken, Suddenly the angel comes, right? This is the same angel, ironically, that was the one who set Peter free from prison, which was going to be part of Herod's expression of his power again. That angel that had set free Peter from prison came and said, uh, here's some worms for you. Yeah. You know, as you were just saying that, one of the things that came to my mind was this just the illusion that we all live with, yeah. that we have control, right? And God can quickly let us know. You're not really as strong and powerful as you think. Um, one of the things as you look at that word smote, it is an Old Testament word, and it's this idea that God divinely intervenes. God is a God of justice. Uh, and whether he exacts that justice sooner or later, he will, because we are all, all of us are accountable to him. And especially the systems of power will be accountable to him as well. I, I want to share with you one thing before we move on, and we do need to move on quickly here. Um, what I find interesting in this passage is you kind of, some people would go, yep, there it is, you know, again, Luke and, and New Testament people, if you're kind of a, a little more on the skeptical side of things, they're making up stuff about, you know, here he's got some worm and they blame it on God. Listen to what the Roman historian Flavius Josephus says about this. What's important to understand is there is often in some of these cases, these stories, extra biblical accounts that account for the same thing. Listen to what he writes. Now, when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea. This is a, not, this is not a Christian person, okay? 
This is a Roman historian. There he exhibited shows in honor of the emperor. On the second day of the festival, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a truly wonderful contexture. He came into the theater early in the morning. At that time, the silver of his garment was illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's ray upon it. It shone out after a surprising manner. It was resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked upon him, intently upon him. And at that moment, his flatterers cried out that he was a god, and they added, be thou merciful to us, and a bunch of other things, you're so superior. And upon this, this is what Flavius Flavius Josephus writes, upon this the king died, did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. A severe pain also arose in his belly, and he began in the most violent of manner, this sense of illness, and when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed um, this life, being in the 54th year of his age. And he also says this same thing. That's what they believed in that world was coming from God. So that kind of just gives you a little bit of the background. Let's, let's move into, because we've got a lot that we could talk about here. I mean... You're a professor, you're a professor, and this stuff that we're talking about is really important. This whole passage of scripture is around justice. What we see is God is a God of justice, and he's making a very clear statement that when someone stands up against my work, you will be held accountable. In this case, they're standing up and seeking to really hold back the word of God. We knew that it's going to spread, and it says so in this passage of scripture. But let's talk about justice. Let's talk about um, this raises that very question. It's on the lips of all kinds of people. We want justice. We want justice. Um, tell us a little bit about um, some of the, the approaches to justice that you even see some of it in here, but just in our culture today, Peter. Yeah, well, it's obviously been an interesting month, right? On a number of levels. It's been an interesting year. It's been a season of time in our country in which we hear this word justice. And, and like so many different words, it can get co-opted to mean something different than maybe what biblical justice might mean. And it was really interesting to me uh, a couple weeks ago, right in the heat and the heart of the Derek Chauvin verdict and what was going on in our own city, uh, in my ethics class at school at Northwestern, we literally, the the topic was reconciliation. (laughs) I thought, oh, great. Uh, we're right in the heat of this moment. Like, if I ever wanted worms, Kevin, now is the time yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. not show up in, uh, in <laughs> class that way. I've never said that from a pulpit before. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever say uh, that again. But it was interesting as we started taking through the students, uh, taking the students through sort of this this continuum of different ways in which people understand justice. And what I want to point out on the front end is that these four ways, um, in terms of libertarian to liberal, utilitarian, postmodern. All of these forms of justice are, are going to be taught at the University of Minnesota as well. There, there's nothing intrinsically Christian or biblical about these forms of justice. And so when you see some of the ways in which they're described, I think for some of us, we might think that one tends to be more Christian, that one tends to be less Christian. These are just simply secular, social, economic kinds of theories in which American versions of justice are being brought to the table. And Kevin and I will talk a little bit in a bit about the contrast between these four versions of justice, and and the kingdom might intersect with them, but it's almost coincidental when it does. These are just simply secularized philosophers who came up with different ideas, and, and we probably find ourselves located somewhere here when we think about politics and when we think about justice, and, and what we're going to suggest over the rest of our time is that maybe as the beautiful children of light, 
who are part of God's community having given their lives to Jesus, maybe the way we think about these things actually doesn't fall neatly into one of these four categories. But it helps to see them so let me a just, little uh, bit. Interrupt you for a second, yeah, just please. to say one of the things as you look at this individualism to this <clears throat> collectivism, the reality is each one of these have they hold a grasp of some truth of reality. Of course. Right? And that's what can make them something that you're drawn to or people will be drawn to. People are not stupid. So they see things that hold some truth. Problem is that they don't hold the broader truth in anything that's just taken in one certain direction without the right foundations won't play out in the way that we would say biblical justice does. And so when you look at some of these things, your heart, even as you hear these things debated, will be drawn probably to one of these. Yeah, for sure. Right? And, and that's why we, that's why when in, in, in a moment we'll talk about biblical justice, it'll be very important because it helps us, I think, get a broader perspective from what we believe to be revealed truth from a real God. It for sure does. I mean, these sorts of frameworks, these four, you're going to find themselves in the way Fox News is going to approach its conversations. You'll find it in the way CNN yep. approaches its conversations. This is the political heat of the day. And what I would suggest is the reason why we will stay in that political heat is that none of these versions are going to bring the shalom and the peace that we desire. So on the very far end of it, you have a form of justice called libertarian, which is going to be really focused on individual rights and individual freedoms and entitlements. Uh, it is going to be the kind of thing in which uh, small government, for, the, for those of you that really support small government, you'll probably find yourselves in places of the libertarian or the freedom version. And again, we can have some great conversations about how to set up a secularized nation according to these things, but they're still just different than kingdom life. There isn't anything in the Bible, dare I say, that says that we are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You cannot find that in the scriptures. That is a a 16th century philosophy from an individualistic guy named John Locke. And I, for those of you that would advocate for that, I I understand it. and, And my heart rises to that too. But I see all of my young people these days that have now lived out an increasingly extreme individualism that is made even more possible by technology and mobility, and their lives are becoming isolated and fragmented. They don't know their story. Their their world revolves around themselves entirely, and they're alone, and depression and anxiety and these things are all on the rise because of the profound you-do-you, uh, and, uh, and you're free to pursue whatever you want to do. In the Bible, as I've said from this pulpit, actually, our life is not our own. It's been bought with a price. And so we're part of something different. Uh, so let me just yeah, say please. on that real quick, um, I love history. And if you historically are kind of reading through things, especially around Europe, uh, in those times of Locke, etc., they were reacting against a very strong kind of king, dictator. Yeah, for sure. So many, many people had no freedoms. Right? So it really makes sense. So even when it comes to our nation, we're a bunch of, you know, we're known as being the cowboys. Yeah. You know, the, and it's kind of the Wild West and freedom. And so, yeah, that's going to be part of what you're feeling in the tension today, even in our world where some people are going, we're losing our freedom. So anyway. Yeah. And so again, then just quickly, like more of a liberal view would be kind of the opposite historically in terms of the government needs to intervene and needs to step in and be the ones who sort of redistributes the wealth on some levels. Utilitarianism is almost like mob rules. It's sort of just what is the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people, but good gets defined in some really funky ways. And it's, again, it's sort of the 51% 
wins the day. And so th- that's going to kind of bleed its way into a lot of different systems. The most recent system that uh, I remember starting to hear a bit about, uh, my background is both in divinity and in sociology in terms of what I've studied over the years. And so those are the departments in where I teach at places like Bethel and Northwestern. And, and I think it was about 2006 that I noted in my mind that the conversation began to shift away from more about like rights versus not rights and all of this to something very different. And it shifted to the question of who has what power. And that, that formed the basis of critical theory, which began to replace a lot of these other modes. Again, I, I want to highlight, and because critical theory is this, you know, it's this buzzword and, and, and it's just another philosophical system based on sociology and economics. Uh, and it, it has its shortcomings just like the other ones do. So I think what we're inviting you into today, right, is the idea of Maybe we should stop anchoring ourselves in the tug of war between these secularized systems and try to see with a little bit better clarity what is kingdom life in the midst of it. And we can talk through. And I would like to just the balance that we as people need to have is we get on and people get on a bandwagon. They'll say, you know, libertarians, and 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 they're either all all for it or they're all against it. And they're just these words. Also, critical theory, everything's bad in it. Well, there's a lot of. On every one of these, in a foundational basis, they are bad. Can they go to an extreme? Yes, and they can be very dangerous. I don't care which one you actually take. We could we could draw those out. Um, Critical theory. If you want to listen to it, one of my first two podcasts were um, with um, uh, uh, what's his uh, Vischer, um, Phil Vischer, Phil Vischer, Mm -hmm. not Phil. Rob Vischer. Rob yeah, Vischer. Thank you. You would have been doing vegetarian. So I should, have, I should have had this. Then, yeah. Rob Vischer, who is a Harvard Law guy, really bright. St. Thomas is where he's the uh, dean of, of law. And he and we just go through a discussion. There are some benefits and positives about this, just like because it's a view of reality. But right now, it's center stage. And when you hear it, um, you'll hear it off of some Christians everything's bad and get angry. Yeah, I think there's things we could really be really careful about. Some of its underpinnings can be very dangerous, just like any one of them can. And I could show you in history where every one of them have created some great problems. Yeah, I I think just quickly, if I'm going to critique more of the um, freedoms that, uh, of which America has been built. Uh, I think, on, in fairness, then you critique this side of it too, right? And critical theory has three main tenets to it that I can just say briefly. And again, we're doing a Q&A, so we can talk about this yeah, we talk after more. the service too. But the, the first principle of critical theory is something called intersectionality that determines what all of our identities are. And so I am old... Uh, slightly overweight, bald, white guy from <laughs> Germany. I don't know, I'm sure what the, but it breaks everybody up into different identities from white to black to, um, lesbian to straight and, and there's all of these different camps. So that's the first move that critical theory does is it divides all of the image bearers, right? Uh, it, it creates an, an intrinsic sense of division among us according to sort of, I don't know, semi-random demographic things. From there, then, the next question becomes, so which camp, among the different divisions that we have, which camp has the most power in society to sort of realize their happiness and their dreams and all of that, and which camp has the least amount of power to do those things? So you have, number one, that divides everybody up. Two, then it tries to determine who has what power. And so if you're a transgender African-American woman, you'll probably fall uh, on the lower part of the power equation. If you are a middle-aged white male like me, I will, according to intersectionality and critical theory, fall on these high degrees of power. And so 
After that happens, then, there's the last point that comes into critical theory, and that is what's called standpoint theory, meaning that uh, the people who don't have power need to be listened to without question, and the people who do have power need to be dismissed. And the reason for that is there's trying to be this rebalancing of the power equation. And so critical theory is all about who has what power. Uh, If you have too much power, we need to silence you and rebalance you. If you have too little power, you need to be believed without question and uh, and rebalance that. But as we're going to see in a minute, Kevin, right, in in the kingdom, the questions of power are never about who has what power in the power equation. That's something different. So we're going to get into that. If you, But again, I just, you have a voice which they say you have no voice because if you're in that section as a white person, right. male, et cetera, you're the oppressor and you've been yes. forced, you've been social, your background socially, not your individual choices or anything like that, has been what's formed you. So that voice needs to be quieted because you are the oppressor and on the other scale, you're the oppressed and your voice should be heard. That, that's a simple way of putting it. Great way um, to say it. Is there some truth to the fact that this voice should be heard? Of course. Is there truth to the fact that the individual doesn't make choices and is only social? Of course not. But let's not get into that now. No, not now. I, I, I think that'd be fair. <laughs> Are we, is that is that okay? I mean, I, you're the no. professor. You tell me if I'm really off or not. <laughs> I give you a C. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> no, I, I think that. I mean, we can cover way more ground in Q and A, right? Let's, but let's we want to talk about biblical justice, and we, right? we really want to talk about biblical justice because there are some really important tenets that help. I think from a revealed God through His Word keep us balanced. So go ahead and just, I'll let you run through them. Yeah, I mean, without necessarily going through all of these about community and equity and corporate responsibility, all of these things are words that we can say that could characterize kingdom life. But I think, Kevin, the thing where you and I could probably center our remaining time would be around um, two words, and that would be the words love and the words power. Mm-hmm. Because as I've said from, again, this pulpit specifically, I want to say about a year and a half ago now, when you look at the word justice in scripture, it actually shares the same root, or it's the same word as righteousness. So righteousness and justice are these two sort of synonym kinds of words. And if I was to define righteousness for you, it would be that my relationship with God is rightly ordered, and my relationship with you is rightly ordered. And how do you determine when a relationship is rightly ordered within the context of God's kingdom? Well, God's kingdom pulsates with love. That, that which is at the center of our universe through whom all things have come, the very heart of whom is love. But again, we have to be very clear-eyed in terms of what that word love means. It means a, it means a tender-hearted, passionate, authentic, other-centered compassion that never leaves nor forsakes and will seek the well-being of another person ahead of your own. So to, to be a person of kingdom justice means that you're cultivating a heart of love, which means that authentically from the inside out, as you see the brokenheartedness in our world around us, whatever that brokenheartedness looks like, you begin to naturally but supernaturally move with a tender heart of compassion that won't leave or forsake and will give up whatever power you do or don't have for the sake of another person's well-being. Again, well-being defined by the kingdom, not by American metrics, but you're moving towards other people. That's what a righteous life looks like. That means that I'm rightly ordered with God and I'm rightly ordered uh, with you. It's why First John is so clear where it says that, beloved, let us love in that way one another because love comes from God. And anyone who loves this way is born of God and knows God. But then he says something really profound. He says, but if you do not love. If you are not growing with a tender-hearted compassion towards the brokenhearted in our world, if you are leaving or forsaking and living life according to your own metrics, if you're deciding to wield power for yourself, 
Um, if you do not love, says John, you, you don't know God. So what you, what you find in the Gospels is Jesus does not deny there's such a thing as power. Of course. He also at the same time says we are to use our power to love others. That, that's kind of the bottom this, line. This of, is why Harry got struck down. Exactly. Right at the end of the day. To use your power so you can have either official, elected, or positional kind of power. So if you're somewhere running a business or you're supervisor or managing, whatever, you'll be, re, you'll be accountable for how you use that power in a loving way. It doesn't mean you don't hold boundaries and call people to certain things, but at the same time, you do it in compassionate ways and how that works. The same thing is every person in this room has personal power. You have your own little kingdom. And how you integrate that power with others or use that power is going to, in the same way, be accountable before God. Those categories that we put up here that you could look at, um, you can find that stuff. Tim Keller does an incredible job on a lot of this stuff. And and some of the stuff is just actually taken. These five things are taken from from him. Um, If you had a chance, he took pictures of it. They're, They're helpful ways to look at it. But I think bottom line on all this is just what you said. Um, how are we rightly ordered? Do we live in response to a God who holds all kinds of power and yet always uses it for good of others out of love? Yeah, I mean, right, this is Philippians 2. This is, if you want to have unity, if you want to have these things within the Spirit, then have this disposition, have this attitude in you that was the same as in Jesus Christ, though he was in very nature God. He didn't consider his equality or power with God something to be hung on to. Rather, he let it all go, and he took on the form of a servant being made in human likeness. He walked it out to death, even death on the cross. And, Kevin, I think about a a season in my life where I was embarrassed by my lack of brokenheartedness, Mm -hmm. by my lack of compassion. I mean, you, you all know we live in a season where the earth is not right. We live in the midst of this present darkness. And, and I remember asking God, God, can you help me see the world the way that you see through the lens of compassion that... The heavens rent open because of your brokenheartedness for your people. That's why you came. I don't function in that way. I'm mostly concerned with my rights and my future and all of that. Uh, and I, I was truly embarrassed by my utter lack of compassion. And, uh, and it was not an easy journey in which God took me into those places of revealing my self-absorption, my self-centeredness, some of those things. But I remember when I finally woke up at least a little bit and began to see, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I was like, oh, oh, your children, God. And, and you begin... To live a different kind of life. I mean, I'm still self-absorbed, as you yeah, well know. No, we, um, we all live self-absorbed lives right. because we live from our perspective. I, mean, I have no problem looking at myself in the mirror. And uh, but but I think that we begin <laughs> to grow. Taylor, don't laugh at me. Oh, you send me pictures of myself, and it makes me so happy. So we got one so. minute, and I just with one minute, I just <laughs> want right. you. Could you go back to those first three? I'm going to run through. I'm going to ask you to think about where do I need to step into something a bit more. <laughs> Community. Others have claim on my wealth, so I must give voluntary. Do you see yourself? I mean, I can give you all kinds of scripture on this, but do you see yourself in that sense that you can say, here's the wealth you've given me, God. I'm just a steward. How do I step into places of suffering and use my power, which could be wealth, in, in ways that make a difference? Equity. Everyone must be treated equally and with dignity. It doesn't mean you agree with everybody, but it does mean you move towards them in a certain e- kind of way. Exactly. Right? Yep. Corporate responsibility. I am sometimes responsible for and involved in other people's sins. That's a big thing. There is such a thing, and you can see it, and I could run it through for Scripture, institutionalized sin that becomes really dangerous, which is part of what this whole critical theory thing is trying to do. So we can't write it all off. We have to, we, we need to be more humble and hold on to the truth and not what I see so often, our rights and power. Yeah.
Jesus didn't do that. But he did hold the truth. Individual responsibility. I'm finally, um, I'm finally responsible for all my sins, but not for all my outcomes. All the outcomes in your life. There could be a famine. That's why people are poor in a situation. We've got to be really careful to say, because you're poor, it's because of a choice. That can be true. But we need to look at it the way that I think you said humbly, that God does broken heart. Advocacy. And that's the part what the church is called to do. We must have a special concern for the poor and marginalized. Because you know what? It's not because they're more important to God. It's because the rich, they're just as important to God. But they don't need someone to advocate for them. Right? They got the money to buy the lawyers this or that. The church is called. Jesus steps into the places where he sees oppression because he knows they need to be lifted up. And that's part of what we're called to do. So that's, I'm just going to say, think about one of those areas. Are those one of those areas that you need um, to really pray about? I'm going to ask Garrett to come up here, and he should be somewhere really close. Um, And he was just going to share real quickly. We just had an opportunity where um, Garrett and Davis, Malene, and um, as well as Tanvir in our church. I think I see Tanvir back there. You wanted to stand up and just wave. Um, uh, who has done this incredible work in Pakistan. Do you want to just share real quickly? Yeah. Good morning, church. Um, just really briefly, after the Q&A, we're going to, uh, me and Davis, Malin, and Tanvir, we're going to just do an update on our trip to Pakistan. We were just there in April. Um, we're just going to show a few pictures of our trip, but our, the focus will be on the ministry that's there that Tanvir has started. Um, and just how you can get involved. So it was really amazing. There's some amazing work going on there. There's a Christian school that he started. There's beauty school and sewing center. Um, and this is a Muslim country. So it's, uh, it's really, really amazing. Just one example of how you can get involved. I think it's $3 a month can take a child out of the public schools, which are Muslim schools, and into this Christian school that Tanvir started. $3 a month. So... Please come join us after the Q&A, and we'll show you some pictures, and we'll talk about Pakistan. Thanks. Mm, cool. I actually was able to speak in Pakistan through Zoom. Uh, and that set that up, and I spoke to the church people there. Um, I should say the area, one of the areas that uh, they're involved in is where the kiln workers are. And in 60 minutes, um, they basically did a whole report on, um, on them, a 20-minute segment, I think it was, uh, because they're virtually slaves. And it's all Christian community because that's the lowest status. So mm. we're excited about how God's working there. You know what? I'm going to say if you need to go, now is the time. I'm going to just do a brief blessing, and you can leave. And we're going to Q&A. If you're online and doing nothing after this, stay with <laughs> us. Father, thank you. We pray for your blessing over us, your people, we want to be the kind of people who, like you, um, you leave your comforts in order to, to go into the places that are difficult and, and that are, are, are tough. And that means even in our work areas, God. It doesn't mean we have to leave our work. It means right around us we keep our eyes open for how you're at work and how we can step into it and show love with our power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you can go if you want to stay. Um, I might ask Peter a question to start us off. (laughs) Great. Yeah, so I I do mean this. Yeah, please don't feel bad if you're standing up and got to leave. We realize in our church we need... I want you to feel bad. I want you to feel guilty if you leave permission to head out. Yep. But if you want to stay, you can (laughs) stay where you're at or you can move up a little bit closer. We're going to take just a few minutes and go through this. Tell us more um, of what what your major concern is around 
this whole idea of the power critical theory stuff you're seeing in the classroom. Yeah, well, I think, again, Kevin, what we just talked about is you can critique all four of those views from a kingdom standpoint, right? The the ultra-individualized freedom, you can critique um, big government from the lens of forced redistribution, because in the book of Acts, when they're redistributing, it's just this voluntary moving towards one another. It's not a forced redistribution from a bunch of corrupt officials, right? So we're going to, we, we can critique that view too, but the, the critical theory view that I think can be rightly critiqued, number one, that idea of intersectionality or breaking us up into different identities. Within God's kingdom, again, we have the shared reality as image-bearing sons and daughters of the king. That's our only real identity. Now, some people have decided to say yes to the to the gospel that breaks the power of sin and death in their life and begins to restore that image as if they go out in the world, and other people don't. But but we have a shared and common humanity that starts with the, the image-bearing realities of God. So when we divide ourselves up, by race or by gender or by class, all that, we already are setting the foundation for fights between us. And, and that fight over is over who has what power. And, and, I, and I see it uh, so often in university life. It, it really is driving the conversation on everything. And so if you think about it in this way, um, if I decided at 12.05 on a Saturday afternoon that I wanted to become transgender, I would immediately move from a position of power in which I have nothing to say to a position of disempowered or disenfranchised, and now my words can be trusted. And so um, it's this just really interesting take that, again, I'm happy to critique all four of them. Um, this is as much of a zoo as the rest of them because it's asking the question, who has what power all the time, and then trying to, by power overing another person, trying to take power away and all that. And we, but we well, have to have, question, we have, to have and, conversations about and power. And one right? of the reasons I think as a... Society, we're going to see some of the shallowness in some way. I mean, it's yeah. really deep, deep in the sense of it's it's making its inroads into academia. But it's really incoherent. That example right there, you go, if I'm here and I just make this change, now I'm the oppressed because right. I'm in this class of people. Um, and that happens not just in individuals, but actual. now you can take groups, social groups, and this whole social group right. is got a voice and you don't have a voice. And, and, and there's just some basic incoherencies in that. Talk I'm going to ask, are there questions? Anybody want to offer uh, a question? With regard to this intersectionality, um, I do find it helpful to think about the ways that being a white man privileges me. Being so, I was in a Bible study the other day and helping to host, and just noticed how when I thought about, you know, who's contributing, who's not contributing, I was paying more attention to other white men in the room, we were all white, of course, than to women in the room. And so, how do you think about things like the old boys club, or just our tendency to relate to people who look like us, who have similar backgrounds. And I, I don't think you're wanting to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Right. But, but is there something to be said here for the idea that being black 
means a different experience in our world than being white. Being a black woman means something different than being a white woman. Mm -hmm. Rob, that's why that has such teeth. That's why in our culture today it has, that's why when Locke wrote about the freedom of individuals and democracy and things like that, which were, was new in many ways, um, uh, among uh, monarchies, etc. There's rea- there's truth to that. So no, the thing is, we as a church shouldn't go to an end where we deny that reality. Right. But that you have to be careful. Then that becomes the underground foundational reality. So yeah, yeah and I think Rob, what I would add to that is, I think what we have to be really careful of is in rejecting critical theory in terms of a way to do kingdom life together. It doesn't mean it doesn't have intuitions that can't be helpful. And what we're not trying to do in rejecting critical theory is move back to what America was in like the 1940s or something like that. Like all of those, we we have to learn new linguistics. We have to learn a new way of life. It's going to be very unfamiliar territory because the kingdom has co-opted so many versions of secularized social theory that it doesn't know how to think biblically quite often. And biblical language does end up sounding quite different and biblical ways of life end up sounding quite different. So we have to, like, I think just, th- we, we can understand the continuum, but we got to throw the continuum out so we can hear a different way. So to your point, uh, my daughter Anna, who's sitting up here, and I had a conversation recently that when she walks through a parking lot as a young female, her, what's going on in her experience and in her thoughts as she's walking through a parking lot are going to be vastly different than mine. Right, just by sheer virtue of the fact that she will be under greater threat than I will be at this point in time. And we can have those kind of conversations, but I think this is where we have an invitation into kingdom life in a different kind of way, is that critical theory is more, your it's your own truth, right? And when we don't like your truth, we're going to reject it. Whereas I think the conversation we need to have is truth exists independent of us, and I'm going to be able to understand that truth to some degree— but I'm also going to not understand it to some degree by sheer virtue of the fact I am a male or a female or I'm black or I'm yellow-skinned or brown-skinned or white whatever it is. So you walk with humility together towards the truth, taking everybody's perspective seriously, but not giving primacy to one perspective over the other. You walk in humility together in a shared story together towards the truth of the kingdom that doesn't exist here, it exists out here. And so to silence one group or to give primacy to one group, is not the approach that brings the kind of shalom we're looking for. I would say that we all only see through a glass darkly, and we all have to be at the table, and with mutuality, take another person's point of view as seriously as we take our own. Now we're starting to walk in kingdom life a little bit, where your way of life, I need to attend to that as much as I do my own. But mostly we're like, my way of life is most important. You shut up and listen to me, like on all sides of it right now. And and, and there's and just the a different peop- way. And those groups that are in power usually don't have to listen to other people. Right, they don't. And so why are we where we're at? Because if you are in that place, you don't have to listen to other The voice hasn't been heard. Right. And now the option is this voice can't be heard based on what? Well, the reality is because of the oppression. And so we have to move, like you said, to a place where we say, yes, we are wrong. We repent. We haven't heard the voice. And we need to be, like I said, advocates, champions for those who aren't being heard. Right, but not necessarily having to take the foundational critical theory that says now your voice can't be heard because you're just powerful, and then Jesus would have no voice. Do you know that I don't listen to your voice, Kevin? I don't take it seriously at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't. That's the biggest problem of this whole thing. Why yeah. do I invite you up here? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, okay, don't know. we we do have just a few minutes for one more. Hi guys, you mentioned 
that we have to start thinking differently in the future, and we have yeah. to start thinking differently about the intersectionality of biblical kingdom life and culture and society, and we can't go back to how it was in the 40s. So there are many verses, several verses in the Bible particularly, that have kept certain people in certain roles and doing certain things and kept people uh, not having access to certain things. What verses can we point to in the future and new way of thinking that are critical as we change how we think? Hmm. Those are great questions. Wow, I think we're out of time. We got got two minutes to try and think of the answer on that I think that's it. Thanks for coming, everybody. We have to have a whole new linguistics that is based on no. Yeah, um, no. I you know I, I think, think you take um, seriously things like combining grace and truth and yeah. what does that really look like? Um, do you have proof text Bible verses? Yeah, yeah. I think you. I mean, I'd have to think about it, but yes, there are so many of these things, even in those five things we talked about, that would address that. I would think. Yeah, and I think too. I mean, I think it's maybe not even necessarily looking for other verses of scripture, but what I find in the work that I do is that two different scholars will come to the same biblical text and have very different conclusions about that text, and they are saying both of them are saying the Bible is authoritative. But then, so let's use women in ministry. Not that that is at all a controversial one, right? Um, so, <laughs> sorry, Kevin. Uh, so you'll have um, you you'll have two t- minutes. I know, right? But you'll have two scholars look at the very same text, like in Timothy, right, where it says, "I don't allow to, uh, women to preach or to teach or have authority over men." All of that, and you'll bring in one scholar, like a John Piper, who will say, "Absolutely, the text is authoritative, and this means that women can't be in ministry." And then you'll bring on N.T. Wright, who is as equally proficient of a scholar, and he'll look at it and say, "You know, you need to understand what was going on in Ephesus." that this was a temporary injunction for reasons that were understandable, but it's not about women not preaching. And then, so how do you decide in that where both are saying the Bible is authority? So I think to walk in some of these ways, it's really helpful to say we're not rejecting the Bible for culture. We want to stay within the authority of scriptures, but what is the most reliable interpretation of those author- of that scripture itself that can help guide us in our kingdom lives together? So I would be somebody, frankly, who didn't advocate for women in ministry for the first 20 some odd years of my life. And then I began to explore the scriptures and began to read a lot widely and try to stay as fair-minded as possible, as intellectually honest as possible, with humility, because we're still only seeing through a glass darkly. Said, you know what? I think the interpretations of the passages that allow for women to be in ministry are more compelling than they are not. And so I changed my mind. And that was not easy, but I wasn't rejecting scripture in that. I was saying, I think there's a different view of scripture that is authoritative. By contrast, one last thing is people will say, as soon as you allow for women in ministry, now you're going to embrace the LGBTQ movement, which is just, that's just dumb, lazy thinking, right? Those are two very different ideas. And, and I would say that I don't believe that same gender relationships are consistent with the kingdom, even though other scholars would say they might be. And I debate people on this stuff and, and we have to go through that. So I'm somebody who would advocate for the full embrace of racial harmony in the kingdom. I'd be somebody who would advocate for men and women working together side by side in ministry. And I would also suggest that LGBTQ is not consistent with the kingdom, trying to stay within the authority of scripture in all three of those camps. But we don't think that way. We're forced to pick because of our lazy ways of thinking in our society around some of these things. So I'm not sure if that addresses it, but there you go. I'm glad Peter's here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's past your time. And if you've got kids, you need to pick them up uh, in, yeah. in, in, in the uh, programs that they're in. Thank you. God bless you. I hope that was helpful.